Shit Happens. episode 211 of the yellow wall pod we have <laughs> things to talk about i don't know if anyone will actually listen to this uh, because why would anyone uh, go through this game again but we have to talk about it since it's our duty and uh, we is uh, not only me stefan butzko but also matthias Suk once again hello matthias yeah 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 hi <laughs> yeah. Hi. I'm not even gonna ask how y'all doing. I, I'm fine. I I'm actually uh, doing quite well. Thank you, Stefan. <laughs> All right. I didn't ask. <laughs> also here, Lars Perlman. Hello, Lars. Hello, Stefan. Good to have you here. And Konstantin Ekner. Hello, Konstantin. Hi. And uh, yeah, before we begin with uh, discussing Borussia Dortmund's 4-4 loss in the Revier Derby, uh, I have to thank Patrick Keeler, who uh, pledged us a couple of bucks on Patreon.com, which is very nice. And if anyone else wants to do that, you can do that on Patreon.com slash The Yellow Wall. And yeah, I guess, I guess uh, there's uh, no other way to extend it. We have to talk about it. Borussia Dortmund 4, Schalke 4. Uh, it all started out pretty well. Looked quite good what Dortmund were doing. But uh, yeah, it all went downhill after half an hour or so. But before we talk about all the negativity, Konstantin, why did Peter Bosch hit Domenico Tedesco on the wrong foot initially? Um, because he's not as bad as we think. No, uh, just, uh, I, I think early on in the season, one of the main issues Schalke had was that they were pretty vulnerable on the wings, uh, which is, which is a common thing, uh, among those, those clubs playing a back five. Basically, I mean, playing a, playing a back five means you, you are, you are more, you have more presence in the middle, playing a back four, you are doing better on the wings. And, uh, Schalke has somewhat managed to, to uh, compensate that um, in recent weeks, but it was still something you could you could do, um, you know, changing the formation, uh, basically um, having two men on the right, two men on the left, uh, Guerrero and Götze on the left, Yamolenko and Pulisic, especially Yamolenko and Pulisic on the right, uh, because Ojibka is the one you can uh, over one more easily, basically, uh, which they did. Um, so and and then you can pull out. Kara out of the back back line, uh, but Kara was a little bit hesitant that match, which he isn't normally. But uh, as expected, I mean, it's a it's a derby, so um, yeah. Especially the young guys are maybe uh, more nervous as usual. Um, although looking at Toprak, all all um, some veterans are also nervous in these kind of matches, I guess. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was it was a simple thing to do. It was something that worked out for about uh, thirty minutes or so. 
Uh, then Leon Goretzka came on the pitch and, of course, uh, everything changed. Um, but also, um, doing well in the first half half hour of the match uh, came down to tactics, but leading by four uh, was... I mean, the the margin was too wide, basically. I mean, Dortmund did well, but it, w- it wasn't like they were four goals better than Schalke in the first 30 minutes of the match. Well, maybe Lars can disagree that uh, Dortmund actually were four goals better <laughs> or not. But um, Lars, why uh, was Dortmund's left side so dominant from the get-go? Uh, first of all, no, I don't uh, disagree with Konstantin. The four-goal margin was certainly too high when you consider how the goals came about. I mean, Aubameyang scored with his hand, correctly given, but uh, still not the usual goal. Then an own goal uh, and a wonder goal from uh, Guerrero. So it could easily have been a one or two nil at half time, which I guess maybe would have been better for Dortmund even, but uh, that's another point of discussion. And I think the left side was so good because uh, Dortmund's two best players, I, I could make the argument at least, played together on that side in Rafael Guerrero and Mario Götze. Uh, and they had very nice interplays and are two not only technical Uh, technically strong players but also two pretty intelligent players at least Guerrero uh, going forward I still have some reservations about his backtracking and and defending uh, facing his own goal as we've talked about in a few episodes earlier this year but going forward uh, I I really like what they did and also Nuri Shahin played well I have to give him credit for the first 30 odd minutes Uh, he was the, the third part in that uh, left triangle, if you want to call it that, and I think they uh, they they allowed Dortmund to have more control than they've uh, had in some of these games in recent weeks in this downward spiral. So, uh, if if we can take anything away from this game, uh, it would have been that uh, Götze is really in in great form and Guerrero. I think that's probably his best position for Dortmund uh, on the wing, but without the uh, without too many defensive responsibilities, uh, but obviously Mario Götze out for six weeks, probably going to struggle with uh, making it back in time for the first match of 2018. So uh, we can't even have uh, that little nice thing. So I guess everything's awful. All right. Um, yeah, that's that's a, that's pretty pretty. Uh, yeah, that's just shit that he got injured on a. On a foul, or I don't even know if it was a foul, but it was a kick against us here by Kalijuri. I think it wasn't. They were both already out of bounds. So, you know, so, so needless happened somewhere deep in the second half. Um, Matthias, um, Tedesco actually admitted at the news conference after the game that, uh, he was caught on the wrong foot. Um, how important was it? And I think we talked about it quite a lot that Dortmund fielded that back three, you know, in a three-four-three shape and had two holding midfielders. Well, I mean, we talked about it in the last podcast, of course, last episode, um, and it it helped bring a little bit of the stability. It's basically, I would assume, it's the same reason why Thomas Tuchel went to a back three, just because he's dealing with slightly above average Bundesliga defenders. And 
you pack in a few more, maybe one of them will clean up some of the mistakes of the other one. It's the theory behind it. Um, adding the two holding midfielders in front of with Weigel and Shaheen, you add even more stability. So he, he clearly sees the problem and weakness in the side. I mean, by setting up like that, he's like, okay, our biggest problem is defensively, we've got ball watchers. They're out of position. We need more people back there essentially to give us that strength, but still have a playmaking ability because Weigel and Shaheen are able to pass in a way that can open open things up. So he he addressed the exact issues that we have been talking about for a while. So he obviously showed that he's able to change system. And, you know, his hand was also a little bit forced, I think probably due to injuries and so on. I thought Schmelzer playing at a left center back position actually didn't look that bad. It held him back a little bit from going forward, which kept him kept his positional integrity intact a little bit more, something that I had complained about um, in the Stuttgart match where he was just caught out of position, in my opinion, far too often. This way he was forced to hold his position more, and I think that definitely helped. So it was the right decision to make for all the reasons we talked about in the previous weeks. Yeah, so Dortmund go 4-0 up. The Westfalenstadion is completely exploding. No one can really believe what they're seeing uh, because everyone basically expected a very, very tough match for Dortmund with Schalke probably uh, yeah, doing their homework well and uh, having the perfect plan to uh, yeah, stifle and nullify Dortmund's attack and then score themselves at some point in the game. But uh, yeah, it was 4-0 after 25 minutes and then Domenico Tedesco made the change and brought on... Uh, Goretzka for McKinney, who already was sitting on the yellow card, and uh, Harid for Di Santo. And uh, Konstantin, why all of the sudden did the momentum go completely away from Dortmund? Why all of the sudden were Schalke equal foes in this one, if not better? Uh, because Tedesco is smart and he figured out what, what the uh, weak spot was, uh, or what the weak spot had been in the first 30 minutes, which was, I mean, we, we, we talked about the right side, that, that Ochipko was, you know... Uh, was was basically a little bit of a weak point against uh, Pulisic and Yamolenko, but uh, and the more important one, the, the dominant left side, which we uh, uh, last discussed, um, was was due to McKenny sitting a little bit deeper, uh, being more passive uh, compared to Kolombianka, um, and uh, which also left uh, Meyer uh, in the backfield basically on his own. So uh, what Tedesco did, did is was bringing in. Um, Goretzka for McKenney to, to have, uh, you know, two holding midfielders, basically. So Goretzka, uh, supported Meyer better in the, in the holding midfielder space, so to say. And Hurd, uh, was far more present in the, in, in, in the space between Shahin Götze, Schmelzer and Guerrero, which was the diamond on the left side. Um, uh, which was crucial or uh, that, that left sided diamond was, was crucial for, for Dortmund's early success in build up play. Um, Howard interrupted the passing uh, play out there. Goretzka also interfered there. Um, and bringing in Howard instead of Di Santo, uh, which let them build what could be called a double 10, uh, with Colombianca and Howard. So it gave, it gave them more connection in, in, in their own possession game, them meaning Schalke. Um, so yeah, on one hand, they interrupted, uh, Dortmund's 
build up play far more effectively. Uh, the, the, the pressing worked far better than, um, uh, than it did, uh, before the two substitutions. And on the other hand, uh, yeah, um, I mean, Goretzka and Howard, uh, coupled with Kolombianka and Mayer, um, you got four players basically. You could let the ball, cir- ball circulate, f- uh, better. And, and, um, yeah, so they turned, f- they turned the match around more slowly, of course, uh, because un- until halftime, they didn't score or anything. So there was basically the, the f- uh, transition period until the, uh, um, Schalke took over the entire match, but, uh, they, they first and foremost after 33 minutes of the two substitutions, they basically stopped the pleading. Um, we covered and then, uh, got back and, and scored the goals, uh, which happened, of course, in the second half. Um, I mean, we can discuss what, what the, the influence of the referee, of course, um, because, I mean, talking about Kerr, um, there was basically a, a red card needed, um, for a, for a few moments prior to the halftime break. Um, but I mean, that's not Schalke's fault and, and what, what Tedesco did, as a coach was the right thing and he should be praised um like from an object- objective standpoint he should be praised for what he did um and uh red card not given uh is one thing but i mean bosch has to react to what uh tedesco does um at that point um i mean you you can you can be mad at, at the referee that's that's something we can discuss but uh still i mean if if schalke adjusts uh, the the own uh, their own system then you have to react at least uh during halftime break i mean if you need a few minutes um it's not expected that you that you can react immediately um you know a pr- few minutes before the break but then during halftime you have to figure out something or at least uh have some some options ready to react uh, in the first 10 minutes of the second half which didn't happen yeah constantine a little follow-up question in in your book, what kind of reaction would you have like? You know, what what would you have done maybe as a coach of Borussia Dortmund to react to Tedesco's adjustments? Uh, basically, going back to a four three three. Um, so Dortmund was vulnerable on the rings for for more severely the, uh, and after after Harrod and Goretzka came in. Um, so you go back to a, to a back four, of course, to to protect your wings better. Uh, which is, I mean, that's, that's the thing when you have a back four. Uh, so, and also to, to, to force your, the two center backs to, uh, be a, be a bit more active in build up play. Because what happened was after 30 minutes, 35 minutes, uh, they started to be more hesitant in build up play. Um, normally you, you, uh, you know, let's say Toprak plays place the ball to, uh, Pulisic, then he has to go wide a bit, uh, to be, to be there, uh, for, for a backwards pass. He didn't do that. Schmelzer did it somewhat to some extent, but Toprak didn't do it. So he, he left, uh, Pulisic isolated. Do you, in case you have a back four, uh, they are basically forced to go a bit wide. You can, you can let, uh, Weigel drop back to, uh, protect them, uh, somewhat. But, um, yeah, I, I think going back to a back four, four, three, three, for instance, four, five, one, something like that, even a four, four, two would have worked quite well. Um, but with three central midfielders, you can, you can basically battle, uh, Schalke there. Um, let Aubameyang drop a little bit back to, to, um, pressure Meyer. Um, so there are options to do that. Um, or even, you know, play Götze as a false nine to pressure Meyer. Um, if, if you, if you do a substitution and, and, um, substitute Yamolenko, uh, which 
you should you should do at that point um so yeah there um there you go actually that's that's what you sh- what you could do in in, the, in in that situation i think just uh, the thing is when you when you are leading by 4 uh, maybe you think uh, everything work, will work out well uh, in your favor, even if you concede one or two goals. Uh, but um, at that point, or at this point, uh, Dortmund is, is not stable enough. Uh, you know, it's just lacking stability, um, and you can see that they that basically they, they are so shaky after conceding one or two goals. Uh, it's like a like a house of courts, and we know how usually the house of courts ends. All right, no spoilers, please, because I'm still somewhere in season two or three. <laughs> so um, there's that. Um, last, I've written down one note that's called the Weigel situation. And uh, I think it's at Finja underscore F on uh, Twitter who uh, basically drew a Pac-Man around Julian Weigel on this 11 ga- against 11 uh, uh, pass matrix we saw. Um <laughs> Do you have any explanation why uh, Julian Weigel had this only the the second least amount of passes on the entire team throughout 90 minutes? Well, obviously there are a couple of explanations in this game, and then more general generally about his uh, form at this point of the season. Starting with the latter, I think we always have to remember that he missed the entire summer with a, a broken ankle for month injury layoff. Uh, the first longer term injury of his career. He's still a young player, so uh, maybe we shouldn't expect him to be at his best uh, without a summer preparation with a new coach coming in. Quite a different role for him. So, uh, I mean, it's it's probably explainable to an extent that he's not hitting the same height uh, as he did under Thomas Tuchel for Dortmund. And then in this game particularly, uh, we already mentioned Dortmund were dominant on the left side and Nuri Shahin played next to him and was very dominant on the ball in the first half. Um, I don't uh, have the exact numbers in front of me, but I'm pretty sure he had more touches than uh, both Götze and Weigel combined. So when you have someone like that playing next to you and the focus of the team's attacking players on the other side of the field, You just don't see the ball that often, so to an extent I can explain it away, but I mean, it's not just this game, it's the entire autumn or the entire part of the season right now and and in which Weigel has been marginalized in Dortmund's system, in which I'd, I'd say Dortmund's best defensive midfielder on paper, I mean, we talked about it, I think, two weeks ago, that in this system it doesn't matter who plays because Weigel is the better player, but Schein is probably the better fit. Uh, it's certainly a huge problem for me and, and one of my qualms with uh, Peter Bosch as Dortmund's head coach that he doesn't have a system in place that makes the best use of his best players in uh, Julian Weigel and Aubameyang particularly. And I think uh, as long as Weigel is asked to do things he's not very good at, we are going to talk about him as a liability instead of uh, a strength of this team, which he should be going by his general quality and also his personality. So uh, it's certainly an unfortunate situation for Weigel, having already missed the summer, as I said before, but also uh, going forward, uh, seeing as there's a World Cup at the end of the season, which you'd expect him to go to just by his quality and the fact that he was called up for the 
uh, Euros in 2016, but uh, right now I think uh, Yogi Löw would have a hard time picking him for the 23-man squad. So I think uh, the the Weiger situation is going to be lingering for the rest of the season. Probably depends obviously a bit on the coaching situation and uh, if there are changes in uh, personnel at the head coaching post, then we can presume they'll look for a coach who will make better use of uh, Weigel's talents. Yeah, I guess we will uh, move over to that discussion in a bit. But uh, before we do that, I still want to talk a little bit more about the game. Um, Matthias, uh, we briefly touched upon the uh, red card um, that was not given for Tilo Kera. I would make the argument he already should have been off in the 21st minute when he uh, had a stats up challenge with both legs first into Nuri Shine. And then uh, I think it was just before halftime or so when uh, there was another foul where he definitely should have seen a yellow card, a second yellow card. Um, you were <laughs> you were quite vexed about that. Aitikin uh, more or less showing pity there especially with Aubameyang getting sent off later for yeah two fouls that weren't as bad as this Keras in addition. So um, although it's of course not an excuse, you now can cry a little bit about the referee if you want. <laughs> it's not crying, it's stating facts. I mean, I'm not crying. I mean, for a second there, I thought it was Manfred Stark back out there. Um, Wolfgang? The Wolfgang Stark, whatever. Uh, one of the Starks. But be that as it may, the the issue I have isn't so much that Tirukera dodged two red cards in the space of 20 minutes. Um, and it wasn't even the fact that Obama Young got a yellow card for a second foul, which was a yellow card. It was, first of all, Obama Young's first booking to me was not a booking. Um, I wouldn't even, I don't even know if it was necessarily a foul. Um, the issue I have is when a referee through incompetence and inconsistency affects a game to that level. Um, it's like giving a penalty when it's not justified, a red card when it's not justified or not giving a red card when it is justified. That has a clear impact on the match. Because Keira didn't get sent off, even though he stone cold should have twice, Tedesco is going to do the most intelligent thing he can. Take him the hell off the pitch, because if he would have stayed in the second half, he probably would have been sent off. And if then you combine the fact that the utter collapse, the, the final total chicken with the head cut off running around collapse came then after or just just before really Obama Young did that foul that got him sent off but it really came after that because it was just panic city uh, it doesn't excuse individual mistakes especially coming off of set pieces which I hate you know it's a set piece that's but that's been an Achilles heel for Dortmund for years that transcends Bosch we, we complained about that for years uh, set piece defending, but it, that's really my big issue that by not giving red cards when he should have, okay, fine. But then you have to apply that same blind principle to the other team. And people say, well, each individual situation is different. In theory, that's right. 
but it but you can't be that egregiously um inconsistent and knowing that when you go down to 10 men especially when the momentum is shifting and the other side is a good team it's not like you're playing against Köln but you're playing against a good a very good team in Schalke that he undeniably has an effect on the outcome of the match now teams go down to 10 men and don't lose of course or don't tie or don't give up goals but given the way the match was going it was an inevitability i honestly wouldn't have been surprised if schalke would have won given what came from that and that's my biggest problem that he had an undeniable clear impact on the outcome of the game doesn't excuse individual mistakes but it definitely has an impact yeah, no, I mean, we can talk a little bit about the mistakes, although it's basically just the same uh, as as we've uh, more or less discussed throughout the entire season. Uh, uh, the the first Schalke goal was, was the most simple long ball, basically. It was uh, Stambouli just, uh, yeah, punting one down the field. Socrates was caught napping a little bit, didn't cover Burgstaller, who just lobbed a header over Weidenfeller, who was... Yeah, somewhere in no man's land. I wouldn't really put too much blame on Weidenfeller for that goal, but but still, that was kind of weird. Where he was standing and uh, yeah, sort of looked dumbfounded when the ball went over him into the net. Of course, not the most uh, yeah expected goal. Let's put it this way to for for Bookshire to score, but nevertheless, a simple long ball and said, boop. It was for the one, and uh, you never knew what was coming next. But a couple of minutes later. Uh, Konoplyanka dances past Toprak. Obviously, you know, why would Toprak ever uh, be able to block a cross? And then, uh, Harit in the box, completely alone, even though there are a couple of players around him. Uh, I think Schmelzer, Schein, and Weidenfeller. No one had really time to look for the one and only player in the box at the situation who then more or less had a tap in. I mean, yeah, Weidenfeller still could have more or less saved it, but, uh, yeah, the shot was kind of well placed and, uh, that, that was already annoying. And especially Nuri Shine losing Harid like that is inexcusable and must never happen. And, uh, that's the point where I sometimes question what the, these players are doing when they are trying to defend because, uh, there are defending spaces that I don't know. Just, just no, that, that, that's just bad. And then, Obviously, later in the game, Kalijiri dances past Zagadou. That does, didn't really look good, but there was still enough time and space for other players to step in and, and defend that ball, especially with the Kalijiri having a heavy touch. But nope, everyone was just standing there and, uh, yeah, deer in headlights again, and Kalijiri scored that goal. And then last, I think you, you already mentioned it, the, the 4-4 equalizer, um, I don't know if it was on the air or off the air, but uh, was a good block actually by Konoplyanka to uh, block uh, Zagadou there. But yeah, was as well it is designed, it's it's still a goal that should not happen. And uh, I think everyone in the stadium kind of predicted well what was going to happen that no other than uh, Naldo would go- going to score that. And uh, yeah, so he did. So all in all, that was uh, pretty bad. But uh, let's talk a little bit about what uh, Peter Bosch 
did there. Um, Lars, we had a bit of a discussion earlier, Konstantin, you and I, and Matthias, of course, whether Zagadou played as left back, whether Batra played as a right back. Um, overall, those two substitutions, do they already suggest from the coach that, uh, you know, I don't know, is this, is this ba basically a substitution of fear if you bring two center backs in? And not even play them as center back. Yeah, I, I struggle with that. Uh, I mean, Bartra came in as a right back in a when when they moved back to to a four three three. So that's a position he's played a lot. I think they don't trust Tolian in that kind of environment, uh, given that uh, he's not the most experienced player. And Bartra obviously has played in in classicos and Tol Tolian wasn't wasn't even in a squad. He wasn't, uh, I mean, yeah. then it makes even more sense. I, they wouldn't have trusted Tolian if he had been on the bench. So, uh, my yeah. point kind, kind of stands. So just, just saying, just saying one point, Batra and Sakatu were the only defenders on the bench. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, so the Batra thing didn't worry me too much. And then Zagadou, my, my, my argument here would be that if you want to bring Zagadou in for center uh, for set pieces against uh, Naldo and uh, Guido Burgstaller and, and Nastasic and whoever else then that's uh, that's fine I guess uh, it's a, one of the oldest coaching uh, oldest things in coaching books ever to bring on a tall guy for the late uh, f last few minutes but my idea would probably be to not play the 18 year old either at left back or left center back I think uh We and Constantine will agree to disagree on that, uh, but rather play him up front, let him be far away from danger, and just tell him to get back and cover the tall guys uh, at set pieces. I think that would have worked better because obviously Zagadou uh, was involved in Kalijuri's goal, even though, as you said, Stefan, there there could have been another player or two stepping in to cover for the 18-year-old unexperienced guy. But that didn't happen. And the the problem for me is more, it's not about fear, it's about what Bosch said afterwards, that uh, we stopped playing football, which is uh, one of these coaching tropes when something goes wrong in the second half because nobody really knows what exactly he's talking about. But I mean... Did Dortmund really, really stop playing football in the second half, or did they stop playing the moment they scored the fourth goal, or the moment Schalke bring, uh, brought on Goretzka and Tarit, as as you guys talked about earlier? I think uh, Dortmund's problems didn't start uh, miraculously after 60 minutes or so, but they scored the fourth goal. Schalke made the double substitution, and immediately there was another another feel to the game. Schalke were much uh, the dominant side, even in the first half when they, they didn't even create any scoring chances. But after those two substitutions, the game changed. And as Konstantin mentioned earlier, Bosch failed to react to that. So uh, I, I do like him personally, but I think some of the things he says after games are a bit troublesome to me. And, and it felt to me like he was deflecting criticism in a way that wasn't appropriate. I mean, I think one of the first things he said uh, in that TV interview with Sky is that Aubameyang probably should have scored a fifth. And I mean, if you need to score a fifth goal to win a game at home, then that is a much bigger problem than Aubameyang missing a chance or missing a cutback pass to Mario Götze. So uh, I, I would have liked Bosch uh, to not mention 
the thing about not playing football in the second half because it's meaningless and the thing about Aubameyang also rubbed me the wrong way but then again being in this I guess we can call it a tenuous situation for him or tenuous position uh, with the negative results in recent weeks I guess he's under a lot of pressure so uh, interviews right after the game maybe we maybe I shouldn't put too much into them yeah maybe not but I don't I don't know I, I, I just didn't like the substitutions at all I, I still think uh, Dortmund should have done something to maybe get Nuri Shine off the field who was absolutely spent and could not fill the gaps that were opening up in, in Dortmund's midfield and uh, the the problem I have with Dortmund over I don't know how many years now is as soon as any team really puts pressure on them and they have to sit really deep and more or less in or around their own box they really do not what to do Matthias call it headless chicken defending and that's basically what it is because of course Dortmund are not a team that are used to doing that on a regular basis because usually they are a more dominant side and I don't really think those are routines they really work on the training ground and uh, players really know what to do and uh, every time a cross flies into the box there's some sort of mayhem and uh everyone feels it just looks like everyone is losing their markers immediately and uh, i don't know it, it it's just it's just chaotic and i think the the best approach to that is may, maybe try to not let that happen and maybe instead of uh, batra bring on say maximilian philip or andre schuller just uh, players who can run around a little bit more up front and and uh, f yeah cut off passing lanes and uh, fill holes and that kind of stuff that uh, brings up a little bit more defensive solidity up front but uh, that's that's just my opinion uh, con uh matthias what would you have done substitution wise <laughs> um well yeah hmm i mean the first thing i noticed i mean like i had already mentioned it it seemed toprak was Nervous? Let's call it that. Let's call it nervous. Uh, in the first half, even when Dortmund were winning, he just didn't look comfortable. And I think I tweeted it at halftime. I'd like to see Toprak out of the match, uh, just because I saw him as a liability. Beyond that, yeah, fitness seems to be an issue. If only somebody here on this podcast wrote something about Dortmund's fitness and maybe not fitness, maybe mentality issues. Uh, to talk about that intelligently, <clears throat> uh, just what do we post that today? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So, um, yeah. I, I think so. Definitely go read that. We don't have to regurgitate the entire uh, the entire article, but um, honestly, I don't really see a lot of the substitutions would have made much of a difference because the psychological, the sports psychology issue is beyond who gets substituted, who's in what position. It just seemed to be crumbling rather quickly. I also thought that, and this, you know, was expertly explained earlier, Pulisic just seemed so incredibly isolated and alone and ineffective so much um, that, and again, it came down to Toprak's positioning. So again, it goes back to, I guess Toprak would have been the substitution I would have made. But honestly, 
I don't even think in the current situation and the fact that they're so psychologically easily down and panicky, the, especially the defensive players or pretty much the defensive players, uh, that it almost doesn't matter who you sub in at this point. You're just trading like for like in terms of, um, I guess, I'm not going to say weakness in the head. That makes them sound stupid. But you know what I mean, just that they're nervous. I guess nervous right now is the big problem. Yeah, but the the question is, um, Matthias. Everyone was basically talking about uh, before the before the derby. Peter Bosch said, "Well, this might be the perfect time," and uh, you know, players said, "Whoa, if we just go in front again, and uh, we need a better run, maybe things uh, change in our favor." Now you're funnel up in the derby. You have the best financial at its most excited and loudest. If that doesn't give you any confidence and you end up losing four to four, as I said before, because it more or less feels like a loss. Um, what in the world can now give hope that Dortmund will ever turn this around other than maybe a winter break? Well, I think the winter break is obviously needed. I think breaking from some of these players is definitely needed. We talked about that in the last uh, episode. Yes, you're up 4-0. Um, I compare it, to me, that uh, the goal from Burgstaller kind of reminded me at the time, I told my wife, wow, it's the David Tyree catch in the Super Bowl of the Giants against the Patriots. How it was dare you weird... mention that? That's, <laughs> I mean, I'm leaving. <laughs> But it, it had that fluky nature behind it. It was just a long hoof at Hope. He happens, to, he gets his head on it. He does it well. And it goes in. And then it kind of, it gave Schalke that hope. And what finally did them in was obviously Dortmund going down to 10 men and then panic set in. So it can happen. I mean, we've seen Germany do it. It was just, just a World Cup qualifying, but they were much more dominant than Dortmund was in this match. And they ended up with a four-all draw against Sweden. It's not like they did it against... Italy, okay, Italy may be a bad example right now, but uh, against Spain or somebody like that. But it can happen, and, and one thing happens to another. And and I think if you go back, if you take that Germany example against Sweden, that 4-4, that was really the catalyst that led him to change mentality, to not switch off, and I think which ultimately helped pave the way to the World Cup win. I think something like this can have a positive effect if you're able to get rid of some of the players or at least bring in new players and marginalize the ones that are psychologically weak. And to me, Amatopak is that guy. He's a good player when things are going well, when things aren't going well, he's, he's one of the worst defenders in the Bundesliga. And because he's, he's weak psychologically. And there are a few players that seem to fit that mold. And it just, um, They give up too easily. And that's not something you can coach out of players. That's psychology. You are that way or you are not that way. And to me, the only solution to do that is to get players that are not that way. Players that we have lost over the years. All right. And then. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I brought up David Tyreek. <laughs> it's fine. I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> um, so I guess the elephant in the room here in this uh, lingering question now after the outcome is should Dortmund now prepare 
to get rid of Peter Bosch or should they cling on to him for, I don't know, various reasons? Uh, Lars, you wrote an op-ed and uh, basically made a lot of good arguments why Peter Bosch uh, yeah, basically needs to get out now uh, or at, at some point at least. Um, can you maybe uh, summarize that real quick? Uh, I don't think we need to, I guess Matthias called regurgitate earlier in regards to Konstantin's uh, article on team fitness. So I would just advise people to read that thing. And uh, my conclusion was that I think Paul should be sacked, but that there are no viable alternative options available to Dortmund, which is why it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Um, the problem for in that discussion is that Dortmund have lost three pretty good head coaching material people from within the club in the last two years in David Wagner, who's now at Huddersfield, obviously Daniel Farke, who's at Norwich and Hannes Wolf, who's uh, at Stuttgart and just out coached the hell out of Peter Bosch in that Bundesliga meeting with that team. So uh, the, they don't have anyone in the club right now who could, be that caretaker manager for maybe even the rest of the season and before they can get a, a long-term plan in motion because it's very unlikely that they can sign a, a head coach mid-season that they are comfortable with going for a you know typical three or four year period with a with a head coach so uh, the if if they had a viable option available to them if Hannes Wolf for example was still in the club I think there's no question that Peter Bosch would have been sacked after the derby and I'm I mean you you said Stefan that uh, that was the teaser for the for this part of the discussion that uh, if Dortmund should be preparing to move on or whatever it was I mean if they aren't preparing and and, and at least talking to some people behind the scenes, then they are not doing their job. So I'm not convinced uh, that Dortmund will make a coaching change just because uh, of a lack of options. And also I think the timing is pretty bad this season because the winter break is really short this year. There are probably going to be only like eight or nine training days uh, between the holidays and the uh, Bundesliga match against Wolfsburg. So getting a completely new guy in uh he's not going to have much of an impact after that short amount of time because i mean the the last three or four of those days will be spent on Wolfsburg presumably so it's not like a, a new guy with a different coaching philosophy can can really get his points across to the team so it would all be just trying to build up some sort of a connection between a head coach and and his players so They might as well just stick with Bosch. Uh, they they liked something about him, otherwise they wouldn't have signed him. And we see we we saw at the start of the season that his system can work, even though I'd make the argument that they didn't play anyone and they still were a bit lucky in some of their results, mainly in converting non chances into goals because they uh, didn't allow much defensively playing against absolutely garbage offenses in the Bundesliga. But that's another. Uh, discussion for another day so ultimately uh, if it were up to me I'd probably sack him if I had an opportunity to sign someone halfway decent but since that's probably not the case I think the best strategy is to stick with him and hope beyond uh, 
reason that some things will change uh, magically. All right. So if if I get a fear here on this panel is that, that uh, Lars wants to get rid of Bosch, Constantine is somewhere sitting on a fence and uh, Matthias is in a, in a no department. <laughs> um, Constantine, maybe explain yourself why you would answer the question with a clear yes and no. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, as, as Lost pointed out, uh, Bosch's performance has been pretty bad as of late, and uh, at the other end, there's not really a replacement, so I don't see the point in second Bosch, because I, I still think, like, uh, given the coaches that are available in the free market, uh, compared to Bosch, and what he's capable of, I think he's still the best coach uh, Dortmund can have right now. Uh, so um, that's that's my problem, and I'm I'm not uh, a proponent of sacking someone or sacking a coach to have like this this short term effect of of kicking uh, basically kicking the team's butt uh, and you know getting an extra motivation out of them, um, which will then fade after two or four weeks, and then you are going back to business um, as usual. So um, that's that's something I I don't I don't like um, because I mean it's not something that's healthy in the long run. Um, and as Borussia Dortmund, you have to think like uh, you have to you have to seek for long term solutions. Um, otherwise, uh, you you will end up uh, like the you know like clubs like Hamburg or so. Um, although I mean they they just stick to their coach right now, but still you you get the point. Um, so I, that's that's just my problem. I think Bosch is a better solution right now for for the next few months than than any coach out there that's available. If the situation changes, we can talk about it again. Uh, I mean the situation uh, regarding the market. Um, on the other hand, if there's someone like Lucien Favre coming off uh, Augustinis, uh, losing all the matches, leaving them when they are 18th or so. Um, That's not that's not a great uh, start, you know. It's not a great start to have at Dortmund if he comes uh, f from from a, a club he's he's leaving in the relegation zone. Um, same with same with Peter Stöger. Uh, same with I mean, got beware with someone like Marcelo Be Pielsa. Uh, if anyone thinks that would be a good decision, um, think twice. So um, yeah, overall, I, I, I'm just see I don't see the alternative right now. Um, and there's not a assistant coach who can take over. I don't think someone like uh, would would something could could um, could work out. Someone like Sebastian Kiel would be smart, you know, someone without uh, coaching experience, but uh, with um, you know, a name within the club, a, a former player, veteran. So I don't think that's something you should do. Uh, so unless there's there's some name or some guy you uh, know knocking on 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 uh, Watzke's door and you know being the right guy and being someone who 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 has the philosophy and has the has the mindset and the the tools to um, turn things around, I don't think you should uh, get rid of Bosch. It's just I, f I think uh, you basically moved yourself into a corner uh, a little bit. Um, on the other hand, I mean you don't hire a coach thinking that it, it won't work out uh at least you know not, at least you think it will work out for two or three years i mean not not like not like a club like hiring but at least um uh for for, for a somewhat considerable amount of time it should work out um 
So when they hired Bosch, I mean, there was no no one within the club was thinking, or, or I mean, I guess they weren't uh, didn't have the mindset that uh, Bosch could, you know, be be a failure and they have to remove him after a few months. I mean, I I said in summer that either he will be sacked in November or he will have a, a rather successful stint of of two or three years. Uh, Unfortunately, it looks more like the November option, although November is already almost over. Um, so, but I mean, there's still the, still, uh, the option to, to sack him, but I don't just see it. And I also think that, that Watzke and Sorg, um, they know that their position within the club, uh, their position, um, there were, there were times when, when they were positioned better than they are right now. Um, although, I mean, Watzke had a, had a smart speech or did a smart speech, uh, at the club assembly uh, on Sunday. Um, but overall, I, I mean, if they have to sack Bosch, it's also something, uh, where they have to admit, um, their own fault after what went down with Thomas Tuchel. Um, and there are still a, a lot of fans who think that, uh, it was Watzke's and Zork's fo- uh, fault. I mean, so late, so lately their fault, uh, that, that Watzke is gone, uh, that, that, sorry, that Tuchel is gone, um, which I, I don't agree with. Um, uh, Tuchel also made, uh, made mistakes. Mm, so, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you have to think about uh, how the CEO and the sporting director, how they, how they, uh, see their own position. Uh, I, I mean, they also think about their, their own future, uh, in this regard. And, um, so, but that's, of course, there was not a question, uh, not an answer to the question, but, uh, yeah, it, it just, it's, it's just right now there isn't no one there. Um, and I don't want to see, uh, the Boer or Coman. Actually, I mean, Coman would probably be like the, the best solution of all the available ones, but still not something I would do. Um, so, yeah. Matthias, do you, before we finish this conversation, do you have arguments why Peter Bosch should stay on uh, other than the lack of alternatives? Um, well, I mean, the things I'm going to say, obviously, there. Okay, so I put on Twitter, you know, serious question, if he were to get sacked, who should realistically replace him? And it goes in line with what we've been talking about. The answers range from some decent, but a lot was silly, utopic. A couple were pretty funny, um, and some were just a little... Anyway, um, to me, the excuses for keeping him around are the player material's Pretty crap defensively for our level. Um, the lack of consistency in a back, back line that actually can play together longer without injuries. We already talked about last episode. Also a bit of an issue and the poor recruitment at the right back position. But we already talked about that before the season started that, um, uh, the, the market for quality right backs is pretty limited right now. And then Obama Young, we already said, everybody said that he is not the right striker for a Peter Bosch style system. That's just not who he is. So all that being said, an argument while I'll, I'll make for him is, um, you know, it was always bemoaned that he's not able to, he won't change the system. Nothing changes, nothing changes, blah, blah, blah. Well, he made a massive change ahead of the match. And it proved effective. Now, Tedesco countered it. He didn't necessarily counter early enough, and then his hand got forced with the red card and so on. That all being said, 
the performances right now, not just the results, leave results out of it, the performances right now are not good enough. That is partially on Peter Bush's shoulders. That is predominantly, in my opinion, on the player's shoulders. And it's also partially on Michael Tzok's shoulders because a lot of these players were players he brought in or players he didn't bring in. Uh, in, in the sense of there are certain weaknesses we needed to address that did not get addressed over the last two summers. Uh, which also, I think, was part of the frustration for Tomas Tuchel. That all being said, it then does come down to, okay, if you let him go, who then? And like Constantine said, there is, in my opinion, too, nobody out there available right now that makes sense that is better. It's just not. Uh, Thomas Tuchel obviously isn't coming back. And and names, you know, you can forget the names like Carlo Ancelotti, Luis Enrico, Laurent Blanc, Paolo Sosa. That's that's utopic, won't happen. And I personally, a lot of those managers don't think I'd like to see it. Dortmund. It won't help us. They're not developmental managers. Uh, we're still developing young players. That's still our MO. So... Unless things go nuclear, what I see is most likely going to happen is that, um, like I said, unless it really goes crap, Spira Bosch will be allowed to stay for the rest of the season and they will do what Schalke did with Weinziel. A few weeks after the season is over, he will be sacked. And I think, honestly, his unless things go miraculously great, his fate may already be sealed. Depending on what happens in the next few weeks, if they maybe come to an agreement with someone like a Julian Nagelsmann uh, or a David Wagner or a Hannes Wolf or something like that for the summer, uh, I, I think maybe his fate is already sealed that it's going to be one season with Peter Bosch and that's about it. Well, he also only signed a two-year deal, so that wasn't, I don't know if it was... Contracts mean nothing. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the, the most expensive severance package in the world if you second that's what i'm saying um <laughs> so basically what we can say about peter bosch is for example in the derby he has showed that uh you know he has uh, a tactical mindset and he can outsmart his opposition i think the 343 system was exactly the sort of uh ploy that was needed and worked wonders uh you know it worked much better than uh, anyone could have hoped for Especially as Lars uh, already pointed out, the goals maybe a little bit lucky, but you know sometimes you just get the space and you make the most of it. Dortmund, uh, after all, has quite the amount of individual quality up front, so um, yeah, they can punish their opponents, and uh, that's what they did. I think the biggest criticism right now has to be the lack of in-game coaching or the in-game coaching that is just not working out. Um, he has been outsmarted time and time again over the last couple of weeks and uh, this is a weak spot um yeah this is which just can't happen and uh, to me that right now at least would be actually my main concern with peter bosch that's uh can can i say something to that real yes, quick sure I think the problem we have right now is we have the peter bosch of ajax i would rather see the peter bosch of vitesse because at Ajax, you know, they're one of the two, three best, best clubs by a mile in the Netherlands. Dortmund are 
really good, but not by a mile better than everybody else. And so he could basically let the player material figure it out. When he was at Vitesse, he was significantly more innovative. He was more involved because they were a smaller club and he overachieved with a lesser talented squad. And so I think it would behoove him to basically revert back to a Vitesse mentality rather than the Ajax manager mentality that I feel like he is still carrying with him and that the early results kind of reflected, even though he was the one, he was one of the people who also in the beginning said, yeah, okay, we won, but a lot of things aren't going really well. So he kind of saw the writing of the wall uh, and I'll give him credit for that. But I'd rather see his mentality go back to the way it was at Vitesse when they, when he had to be more innovative, he had to adjust more and, and, and basically think harder for lack of a better term than at Ajax. And I, I think that's the current trap he may be in. Yeah, be that as it may, I still think that's, uh, you know, the one field where he definitely has to improve much more and his uh, assistant coaches. Um, if we look at the positives, though, uh, as, as Constantine really uh, nicely uh, wrote down in this article, is uh, that the, the way Peter Bosch is uh, handling his team's fitness, if we call it that, and so we more or less discussed that a lot of it uh, also has to do with them not being fully fit, is that at least it looks as though, from my perspective right now, is that Dortmund will have a advantage come... Yeah, early springtime maybe over other teams in the, in the, that they will be the more fitter side because they've been managed a little bit different in, in the entire approach and a little bit more uh, carefully, let's put it this way. And, uh, you know, he tries obviously to build Stanima, uh, you know, as the season goes along. So, um, you know, at least this should give a little bit of hope that Dortmund uh, won't look completely flat and tired after 60 minutes. But, of course, I still think that's also down to player material, especially when I look at uh, the likes of Yamolenko and Nori Schein. I still believe that if one or two players drop off, it can make a big of a difference to an entire team uh, just because, uh, yeah, some passing lanes are not cut off how they usually are or pressure isn't applied to certain players and yada 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 you 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 get my point uh you know just little details go the other way and hence you lose a game or a draw it um uh last final point on the revere derby uh, dortmund actually gained a point <laughs> on bayern munich if you want but um is this from a neutral standpoint maybe one of the uh, best bundesliga games in a very long time well, first of all, they also lost two points uh, to Gladbach, which is much more important than Bayern are for Dortmund at this point of the season. Uh, I, I don't really know because most of the Bundesliga games are so boring that I forget about them. So probably, but uh, I wouldn't be uh, speaking about it intelligently just because I don't really remember most of the Bundesliga games apart from Dortmund. So... Uh, for example, I was, uh, and we are going to talk about Leverkusen shortly, uh, I was at Leverkusen-Leipzig, which on paper is probably one of the five or six, or maybe ten, I don't care, uh, best fixtures in the Bundesliga, and that was pretty garbage. So uh, just going by that, presumably it was one of the better games or even a great game, but uh, I typically like games better when they are 
when two teams are so good that the other opponent can't do anything about it as opposed to two teams doing dumb and bad things leading to a lot of goals. All right, fair enough. Um, I guess we can switch over to uh, Dortmund playing Leverkusen on Saturday. Konstantin, how much do you think it will help Dortmund that they don't have a englische Woche, no midweek fixture, but an entire week to prepare for that match? I mean, it can help uh, somewhat. Uh, recovery time is longer, which is which is a big factor, and... Um, Doing doing or studying video footage is important uh, prior to that particular match because Leverkusen has just changed their system from uh, what they had used for years, basically uh, not only under under Schmidt and Kohut but also under Herrlich early on this season. Um, so um, there's a lot of things to figure out um, before traveling to Leverkusen um, to not get steamrolled there because there's somewhat of a possibility to get steamrolled uh, but there's also also a possibility to neutralize uh, Leverkusen um, I mean Leverkusen they as well have one week to be fully prepared um, and with the uh, review derby and with what uh, Bosch did early on in the match uh, he, ha he has shown some of his cards and um, that's something Herrlich could use uh, for his advantage. Um, also, Herrlich, uh, interestingly enough, is one of the best in-game coaches in the Bundesliga. Um, going up against Bosch, one of the not-so-good in-game coaches right now. Um, so, from a tactical standpoint, a pretty interesting uh, match. Just, you know, from an uh, objectively, it's an interesting match. Yeah, Lars can report, of course, because he was there, that uh, Bayer Leverkusen managed to equalize against Leipzig being down to 10 men. So when it comes to second-half performances, uh, I think Leverkusen right now are one of the better sides who then can uh, yeah, shift a gear up rather than uh, gear down. So uh, <laughs> as, as far as in-game coaching and energy levels in the second half are concerned, I, I think Leverkusen may just score 10. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Matthias... In all seriousness, uh, Leverkusen only lost one of their last 10 and uh, looked to be very much on the up. And I think there are a lot of people who uh, predicted them to be much, much lower in the table. Uh, I mean, they're just uh, one point behind Dortmund now and uh, look on the ascent as well. Um, what kind of game will this be for Dortmund? Do you think this will be uh, an all guns blazing two teams going at each other match or do you think this will be a more conservative away approach by Dortmund well I don't think Peter Bosch can do conservative um, I think it's going to be more the former two teams going at each other um, pace mistakes goals um, and I think the reason why people kind of looked down the chances looked down on Leverkusen or so on because they had that that odd last season and because I, I don't think it has anything to do with the players because on paper Leverkusen still have one of the absolute best squads in the Bundesliga I think it comes down to nobody took Heiko Herrlich seriously um you know I mean not even Woody Fuller though when at the at yeah, the press conference no, when Herrlich no. was introduced it was basically our oh, well, we didn't get the uh, the 
people we hoped for, but he is psychoherlich. <laughs> yeah, and and rightfully so. I mean, if you think about it, he failed miserably when he was at Bochum. Is that now seven years ago, I think? Uh, in his first managerial post, uh, helped them to get relegated. But I think that was important for him. Um, you know, he got Regensburg promoted. And uh, on the back of that, essentially, it got him into this role. Of course, he is a a Dortmund, call him a Dortmund legend, but a former Dortmund player um, of some, you know, significance. So, I mean, there's there's definitely that connection there. And there's that soft spot for Heiko Herrlich from any Dortmund supporter who's been a supporter who remembers the 90s properly. Um, so I think that's why people underestimated and they underestimated Leverkusen is because they underestimated Heiko Herrlich. He has definitely shown that they should not be underestimated because he's a decent coach, and he but he has a, a well-above-average squad at his disposal. So you combine that together and his ability to, like Constantine said, make good in-match adjustments. I think it's going to be an incredibly difficult match for Dortmund. Uh, but, you know, you never know. Well, even if, uh, even when, when it was still, when, when Dortmund were still five points clear at the table, I looked at this away game to Leverkusen where I would definitely draw an L in, on my prediction board, uh, now even more so than ever, I guess. Um, Lars, what are the strong points of uh, Bayer Leverkusen? We talked a little bit about individual quality. Of course, there's Julian Brandt, uh, maybe Alario, Havertz, uh, you know, who, who do you think are the, the real strong points of Leverkusen or is it just well, all well balanced? Well, actually, I think they are a bit like Dortmund, unbalanced in, in many ways. Um, when, when I was there for the Leipzig match, they did something interesting. Didn't really work out, but I thought the, the, the thought process behind it was interesting. They, had uh Vendel who's a really good Bundesliga left back. There aren't too many, so you can mention him with, with the absolute best actually. Uh they had him, uh Leon Bailey, who's really coming on this season, and Brandt all playing basically on the left wing together. So that's a lot of individual quality, a lot of athleticism, especially from Wendell and uh Bailey. And if if they do that, and I could see that happening again against Yamolenko Tolyan or Yamolenko Batra right wing uh, that spells trouble for Dortmund with a capital T so uh, I think you you nailed it on the head the individual quality of Leverkusen to me looks stronger than the sum of its part, parts if that makes sense there are usually a couple of players that really are, aren't all that great in Leverkusen's team but The, the strong individuals can overcome that. So, for example, in that game, uh, Mehmedi played at, uh, on the right wing and he was absolute garbage. Uh, Dominic Kor in, played in midfield and he gave a performance that Sebastian Rode would be proud of in uh, the sense... He had sense. a nice assist, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing he did in the entire game because he was actually avoiding getting the ball whenever Leno had, a, uh, had the ability to kick off Uh, from his goal, uh, Kor would position himself willingly in the cover shadow of opponents just to not get the ball. So I guess that's some of the, the stuff that you only pick up when you're in the stadium. So 
I was actually surprised because I thought Core was uh, a bit better than that, but maybe just had a bad day. Uh, but generally speaking, I think Leverkusen uh, have the individual quality and they have the run of form. And particularly their second halves have been very strong. I think they've scored 11 of their last 12 or 10 of their last 11. Doesn't really matter the, the exact number uh, in second halves. And whether Dortmund have a fitness issue or not, uh, doesn't really matter. The, the fact is that they've been absolute garbage in the second halves of many games. So, uh, Leverkusen know they only need to keep it somewhat close. Uh, for the first 60 odd minutes and then roll over Dortmund in the second half and with Dortmund missing their best player of this part of the season at least in Mario Götze and Aubameyang also being unavailable I would join you in marking this as an L for Dortmund All right, then yeah if I, I uh, can make one point I think the only weak spot real weak spot right now is Bernd Leno in goal. I think he has a horrible season and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see another blunder by him. But then again, uh, Dortmund also sometimes tend to uh, make goalkeepers look very good. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's uh, all I have to say on, on that well, game. Also, um, he was man of the match uh, against Frankfurt. Oh, was just, he? <laughs> just saying, yeah. Well, I didn't. I didn't see the highlights. I haven't come around yet, or will probably ever, to watch the highlights of match day thirteen, because I just want to forget all about that match day. Um, Konstantin, uh, how do you actually expect Leverkusen to set up? Do you think they are just uh, do the whole man marking game and try to beat Dortmund on a counter attack? Do you think they will uh, try to seek possession themselves, uh, or what? What do you think? Heiko Herrlich will do. Um, I mean, the recent Leverkusen matches were, as as far as possession goes, the recent uh, Leverkusen matches were pretty pretty much fifty fifty uh, most of the time. So, so Leverkusen is not in the in, in the we don't want to we don't want to have the ball business right now, but also not in the we don't we don't uh, we want to dominate business. So I don't know. It's just it's just somewhere in the middle. Um, man marking not so much. It's it's, it's rather like a mix of man marking and some coverage. Um, all it also depends a little bit on on how Dortmund would set up. Uh, I mean, if, if Leverkusen plays the typical uh, Christmas tree thing, um, then. I don't know. I don't know if we could man mark if Dortmund goes back to the four three three. I don't think so. Actually, um, you, you could do that. But I, I, th I think one one important feature uh, Leverkusen will have is is that uh, Brandt and Harvard, so the, so the two number tens basically, uh, they they will try to to isolate or just cover uh, Weigel and and Shahin or Weigel and whoever or Shine and whoever 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 plays in the center midfield. Um, they will try to isolate them. They will just just Force Socrates and Toprock, I guess, um, to do to do more and build up. Uh, if Bartra plays in, as, a, as a center back, that could be interesting actually, um, uh, because Dortmund, I think, needs his his uh, forward movement, um, right now more than than ever before. Um, so and especially against Leverkusen, so that could be something. Um, uh, especially when he plays on the left side, uh, because then you you could go up against Core sometimes, which is um, as as Lars already mentioned, he's he's the uh, one of the weak spots. Uh, all also um defensively, he uh, he can this he can interrupt 
uh, the, the opposing possession game pretty pretty effectively, but still there are times when when Kors just not there. Uh, it's 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 he's a pretty interesting player. Uh, not as far as performance goes, but just uh, how he plays and what what he does uh, that he that he's managed to do in the Bundesliga as well. Um, so yeah, I've just uh, I, I I think Leverkusen will do what they did uh, in, in the in the past few matches, uh, which is you know uh, playing some courage, pre- not as not as uh, or they're pressing not as intense as maybe under Roger Schmidt and even under um, Heiko Herrlich early on this season, um, a little bit more laid back, uh, and then um, using Bailey on the left, using Mehmedi or um, maybe on the right or, or Brandt on the right. Uh, you know, really attacking wingbacks. Um, and then we, we'll see how it goes. I mean, it's, it wouldn't surprise me if like someone like Tolian will, uh, have his, have, have a bad uh, day, have a bad Saturday against someone like Bailey. Um, uh, especially if he gets isolated pretty often. Uh, or even if Toprak uh, plays as the right sided, uh, center back and will, have his hands full against uh, Brandt and and Bailey, for instance. So there there are several like combinations, like duels, uh, where I see Dortmund uh, struggling. All right, Matthias. Um, we have, of course, uh, a big question here in the room: is how will Dortmund compensate the loss of Mario Götze now? Do you think that the uh, Mahmoud Dahoud will? come back and and uh, finally start playing well or do you think that's more a job for Shinji Kagawa or uh, how do you think Dortmund will fill that gap because he has been the ray of hope in a lot of misery in the last weeks I think you named the two most likely players Kagawa and Dahoud I think my gut tells me maybe more Kagawa because he's seen more playing time than Dahoud. So he's, there seems to be a little bit more trust there. He's also a bit more of a veteran player. And Dahoud, I've already said that in my opinion, Dahoud's been in a, a longer form slump, already going back to his time at Gladbach. So I would say, yes, Dahoud will get more playing time than he's currently getting, which isn't very hard. Uh, but I would say overall... Probably more Kagawa. I would also venture to say that we'll get a good ta- a good helping of Gonzalo Castro again. Yeah, I was just gonna uh, revert that question over to Lars. Um, do you think we will see way more of Gonzalo Castro now in that left uh, midfield, central midfield spot that Götze uh, usually plays in, and? Also, uh, would Rafael Guerrero be an option for that in your view, or do you think uh, Bosch should stick with him on the left wing for now? Well, if it's uh, going to be a 4-3-3, then I'd rather see Guerrero in midfield than at left back, uh, even though Schmelzer is not in a great run of form. But I think I've mentioned enough times uh, how I find Guerrero a bit... uh, Un, uh, it's not a great fit for him as a regular left back. I know many people think he can play that just because he's done it for Portugal, but I just don't really like him there. And I think it's a waste of his potential going forward because he's so, he's got a, such a good feeling for, for spaces and, and movement. So I, I just like him closer to the opponent's box. If it's a 4-3-3, uh, I'd, I'd actually rather see him as the left attacking winger than the left back. That's how much I rate him going forward. So 
uh, the thing with uh, Castro is that I'm I'm bit surprised or have been surprised how much uh, Bosch has been willing to play with Kagawa and Götze together. I would have thought that it's usually one or the other, but there have been more games than I would have imagined uh, in which they've played together. So uh, Götze being out doesn't mean that it's going to be either Kagawa or Castro could easily be both, uh, especially in the 4-3-3 again. Because uh, in the 4-3-3, I don't really see Weigel and Schein playing together too effectively. They had it, just those two isolated had problems uh, playing together in uh, Saturday's Revier Derby. So uh, to me, it will probably come down to uh, one defensive midfielder, Kagawa and Castro. Uh, I would like Guerrero there, but I can't see it. And I would like Dahoud, but I really can't see that uh, after he was once again fairly, uh, yeah, fairly bad actually against, uh, against whom did he play? Was that Spurs? Stuttgart. Yeah. Oh, Stuttgart. Yeah. I mean, it, it was bad enough for me to not remember just like two weeks later. So, uh, I, I really like Dahoud. I think he's going to be a very good player for Dortmund, but he's probably, Probably going to need the the even though it's short this year the winter break to to reset and and get a fresh start if you like in in 2018. So even though this may lead to more minutes for him, I wouldn't uh, expect him to do too much with them. And I think Bosch shares that expectation, mm-hmm. seeing as how little uh, he's used uh, Dahoud in recent weeks. All right, I guess uh, then we can move on to predictions. Uh, Matthias, since you have to go, uh, you can tell us how Dortmund-Leverkusen will pan out and then uh, tell our listeners where they can find you. Well, I think Leverkusen will win this one. I think they will win this one by the scoreline of... Well, let's give them a 2-1 to one victory here. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Matthiasuk. Thanks. All right. Thank you, Matthias, for chipping in. And until next week, I guess. Um, Lars, your prediction? Uh, I'll make the extra prediction, or hope rather, that Jabulenko starts up front for Aubameyang and not Schöle. But I don't know how accurate oh, yeah, I totally that is. I forgot about that. Yeah, but I mean, I've just answered it, I guess. I, I, I would assume that you guys actually agree with that notion. Uh, so my score prediction is... Uh, 3-1 for Leverkusen. Konstantin, would you also play Yamolenko instead of Schüller up front or would you go to Alexander Isak? Isn't Alexander Isak injured right now? Um, I'm not sure. I'm he has a sure. knee injury or at least he has some kind of knee injury. I don't think it's pretty severe or, so, or anything, but who knows uh, if he's really capable of playing um so i don't know no um I'm, i mean just you know uh without drawing it out too much um i would like to uh stick to the three four one two formation kind of kind of formation uh just uh because i think you can guerrero play as a left back as a left wing back um and you can kagawa play as the as the number 10 you could pulisic play as the number 10 also on the right side and you can use Yamolenko, Philip, Sancho, Schürrle, um, and Oamiyang, basically all these players as, um, 
wide center forward, so to say, which what what you do in in diamond formations often enough, uh, which means not really playing in the middle, but playing in the half spaces. And so I would like to see uh, Kagawa playing as number ten and Philip and Kiyomolenko playing as the left sided and the right sided center forwards, or the white sided left sided forwards or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, that's basically what I would l- like to see. Um, but I don't expect it to see, so I guess Yamalenko will play as a center forward. Um, and I think uh, Leverkusen will beat Dortmund uh, close, but uh, I don't know, 2 1 or uh, or maybe 3 1. No, or uh, 2 1. All right, then. That's uh, very optimistic. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think that uh, Dortmund are getting pummeled on Saturday. I just don't think that, uh, you know, energy levels for whatever reason, be it psychology or just a bland lack of, of stamina. I, I just think Leverkusen will overpower Dortmund and then will have a field day. And I think this whole thing will end for the one to buy a Leverkusen. And hopefully I'll be wrong, but, uh, yeah. So I, I just think things will go from already shit to even worse still and uh yeah that's that's my prediction uh Dortmund can of course surprise me by uh, getting a point or even three but I just don't see a turnaround right now um Lars do you want to predict or even preview the uh Wednesday match at Madrid because I have no desire whatsoever for this match to even talk about because it's completely irrelevant now uh, I don't know if it's relevant because uh, Tottenham have already won the group and uh, could easily, given how they're going uh, downhill in the Premier League right now, I think they are playing as we speak and were down 2-0 to Leicester uh, last I checked. So I could see uh, some youngsters getting a run out there to uh, rest some of the starters. Let's remember that Pochettino is not afraid to do that in European games. Uh, if we look back at the 2015-16 Europa League, where they met Dortmund and twice played less than full-strength teams. So, I mean, it would still be a surprise for Apoel to come away with a point from uh, Wembley Stadium. But, you know, stranger things have happened. And I can't see Dortmund coming away with anything from the Santiago Bernabeu, even though, as we speak again, I think a third division side are leading at uh, Madrid in the cup. Uh, or may- maybe it's second division. I don't, I'm not too well versed in non first league Spanish football, sadly. It's my one weakness in uh, football reporting, I guess. So, uh, this, the game might actually still mean something, uh, in terms of the Europa League. But then again, I don't know if Dortmund would be too miffed about missing out on the Europa League, actually going by their, uh, wavering league form, um, and the added strain the Europa League has, uh, especially compared to the Champions League, because there's, the, there's an extra round and you have all these, uh, Thursday, Sunday rhythms, which are, unfortunate or you might actually end up playing on Monday night this season as the Bundesliga has for the first time uh, put those in the uh, match schedule for the second half of the season so ultimately the game is probably meaningless for Dortmund either way but uh, since it's the last Champions League match of this season and could well be the last for like two years or a little less than two years 
uh, depending on how the rest of this season pans out, I'm sure they are going to put a pretty strong team on the ta on the pitch and and at least try to say goodbye to European football's premier competition with a decent performance, even though uh, at Real Madrid in this run of form, a decent performance would probably be uh, to to not get pummeled again. <laughs> so uh, I guess let's just predict the game real quick and I'll say 2-0 to Real. Okay, I'll uh, concur with that prediction. Although, no, actually, actually, I'm pretty sure Dortmund will score at the Bernabeu. So make it 2-1. Constantine? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess there are two ways that the thing will pan out. Uh, I was will be a pretty embarrassing night for Borussia Dortmund, which I could see even even if uh, Real Madrid uh, uses some second-string players. Um, and also, I remember vividly... Uh, uh, 3-0 defeat uh, a few years ago when Oamian was playing up front. I don't know if you guys remember that, but that was something that was also an embarrassing night at, at the Bernabeu. Um, could see something like that happen again. Um, so, and yeah, I guess that will be it. Uh, I mean, it will also be embarrassing to um, be beaten by Apoel, uh, you know, for the Europa League spot. Um, I, don't, I don't mind not being in the Europa League, but just being beaten by Apoel uh, for that spot is a somewhat of an embarrassment uh, for Borussia Dortmund and the ambitions of the club. Uh, yeah, so Real Madrid 3, uh, Dortmund 1. Something like that. Maybe this is the game where Dortmund finally come up with some confidence because uh, Real Madrid just don't care at all and, I don't know, draw a complete blank on Dortmund. I don't know, like like Wolfsburg that one season did win at the Bernabeu. <laughs> I still don't see that happening, but uh, who knows? Anywho, thanks you guys too for coming on. And I'm very glad we have made it almost one and a half hours without mentioning Armin Fee, and this is how it should end. Uh, <laughs> Constantine, where can people find you on the internet? Um, as always, on Twitter, uh, cc underscore eckner, and of course, they should check out uh, spielverlagerung.com. Very nice. Lars? Yeah, I think it's a, a failure on our part not to have mentioned Dortmund's phenomenal new head coach, possibly. But uh, other than that, people can find me on Twitter with that level of bad jokes at Lars Polman. All right, Dad. <laughs> uh, you can find me at Stefan Butzko. You can find my work on ESPNFC and... Uh, If you want to get a hold of all of us, you can do that on Twitter at yellowwallpod, same as Facebook. And uh, yeah, yellowwallpod.com is uh, the source where you can find the well-written articles of Lars and Constantine we have mentioned now a couple of times on this episode. And uh, yeah, if you want to record, uh, record, no, <laughs> if you want to subscribe to this show in one way or the other you can do that on itunes stitcher soundcloud and your podcatcher of of choice and if you want to contribute to the show in a financial way you may do that on patreon.com slash the yellow wall that's all from us for now until next time goodbye <laughs> Schauspielpuppe bis zum Wiedersehen Alle kommen vorbei, er braucht nicht rauszugehen
Zukunft. Und am Ende 